Again, want to welcome you uh, guests, and as Pastor Steve said a few minutes ago, um, as you mentioned, who would be preaching? You mentioned my name. My name is Nathan, and I'm one of three pastors here, and um, I'm glad that God has brought you to be with us this morning. As you make your way back to your seat, I want to ask you to uh, stand. If you have a Bible, you can go ahead and take your Bible and... Um, open it up to 2 Thessalonians, where we'll be today, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, you can get one from the back. And now that I've had you stand, now I command you to sit. Oh, look at that. No one sat down. Not surprising. Oh, did you? Thank you, Olivia. So... I was going to say, unless you are an unusually submissive person, uh, when you hear a command like that, your first response is to do the opposite, right? Yeah, Yeah, you felt that impulse of, I'm just going to stay standing. In fact, because he told me to sit, commanded me to sit, he didn't even ask, he commanded me to sit, I'm just going to stay standing through the whole thing, I don't care. (laughs) Well, we all have that resistance to being commanded, and part of that resistance is in this situation, just the situation that it's inappropriate, unless there's an emergency for your pastor to give you commands about sitting or standing, and uh, it goes beyond the authority that God has given me as a pastor, and so that resistance is right, but I think it also points out a little bit that we have this natural response, this natural innate resistance to commands, and uh, outside of Really, the military or maybe emergency situations, I can't think of many scenarios where Americans are not resistant to commands. Like we, even, even by people in authority, um, a boss, a parent, like kids, do you enjoy being commanded to do something by your parents? You, you want them to ask you, right? Officers of the law, right? Police officers. If, uh, if a police officer pulls you over, walks up to your window and says, Give me your license and registration. You're like, immediately, well, this guy's a jerk. We want them to ask us, please give me your license and registration. We don't like commands, and it's not just other people that we have a hard time uh, receiving commands from. We also have a hard time receiving commands from God. Ever since the fall, all humans have had this innate response of uh, when we hear a command from God, we almost immediately, we want to reject it. We do reject it. And even as believers who've been given new life by the Spirit, uh, when we have the love of God that fills our hearts and our deepest desire is to obey His commands, even though we often fail at it, that's that's really our heart's desire. Even then, we still struggle to obey God's commands, even when we know they're for our good. We, We know that He commands us because He loves us. We still struggle with it. It's hard, but even harder than that is that God normally gives his commands to us through people. Even if, it's his, even if it's his written word, even if it's the Bible, it's still mediated to us through people. And beyond what is explicitly written here, mediated to us, commands from God, God also has delegated his authority to different spheres of life, the family, government, the church. And God gives us commands in these different spheres through fellow sinners. And this is 
one of the things that this passage in 2 Thessalonians addresses, this issue of receiving commands from God through sinners. And so, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, we're going to begin in verse 1 and go through verse 5, but we'll be focusing in the message on uh, the last half of verse 2 through verse 5, but we'll begin in verse 1 for context. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you, and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not all have faith. But the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord about you, that you are doing and will do the things that we command. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. Would you pray with me? God, we ask that you do that this morning. Direct our hearts toward your love, to the steadfastness of Christ, so that we would overflow in love for you. God, you are worthy of our love. You are worthy of our submission. You are worthy of all that we are. So I pray that you speak to us through your word this morning. Keep me from speaking in error. I pray that you enable your people to listen with gladness and with obedient hearts. We pray in the name of our Lord. Amen. Now, would you please have a seat? <clears throat> Thank you. So, if you were listening as I read that passage, um, if you look at these verses, second half of verse 2 through verse 5, you may be thinking, what was all that at the beginning about commands? There's, there aren't any commands in this section. And that's right, there, there aren't any imperatives. But this is actually preparation for commands. He mentions the word the, the commands, uh, but, but he's actually not giving any commands here, but he's preparing for the commands that he's about to give. Because if you read on just one verse, in verse 6, it says, Now we command you. So he's about to give commands, and he's preparing them to hear some pretty direct and challenging commands. And even though the specific commands that he gives to the church in Thessalonica, um, they might not hit us personally too hard, but they're the type of commands that most of us would have a hard time receiving from a pastor because they have to do with the nitty-gritty of life. They have to do with working or not working or how we respond in relationship to other people within the church, especially when they are in sin. These are the kind of personal things um, that Paul is addressing here. And as we'll see next week, there was a, a deep theological connection to these practical matters of, of why a person might work or not work and how the church should relate to them. And so that's why Paul is addressing them here. But the thing I really want you to see today, and from that, these commands that Paul's about to give, is that the Lord almost certainly will give you commands through your pastors or other Christians that will trigger that instinctive resistance to being commanded. And yet the Lord still requires you to obey the uh, 
The good news, though, is that what the Lord requires of his people, he enables in his people. And in his wisdom and kindness, the Lord helps us to obey. And that's what we see in this section of 2 Thessalonians 3, that the Lord graciously prepares us to gladly obey his commands, even when they come through flawed messengers. That's really the summary of the message. The Lord graciously prepares us to gladly obey his commands, even when they come through flawed messengers. And since we're talking about commands, I want to try to disarm a bomb that maybe just started ticking in your mind when, I, when we started talking about commands and, and even reading the last part of this summary statement that, yes, we all recognize that the messengers, we are all, all messengers of the Lord, those who speak on behalf of the Lord, giving his commands. We're all flawed in that we're all sinners, yes, but you might also be thinking, yeah, flawed in that way, but also flawed in that they may claim to be giving the Lord's commands, but it may really just be their own commands. They may be using the word of the Lord, the commands of the Lord, for manipulation or abuse. And I just want to acknowledge up front that, yes, that does happen. It does happen. Sometimes a messenger might just be mistaken, in which case they would be open to correction, might misspeak. But other messengers or so-called messengers of the Lord, might be abusing the authority that they have and abusing those under their authority. Pastors have done this. Husbands have done this. Wives have done this. Parents have done this. And there have been devastating effects in the lives of those who've been abused in this way. And we lament and we stand against that kind of abuse and manipulation. And at the end of the message, I want to give some words of, of caution for any, any who speak with biblical authority. We need to be careful with that authority. But this passage really focuses on those receiving those commands. And so as we look at it together, we need to remember that, yes, there is always a danger in wielding authority, but there's also a danger in overreacting against the abuse of authority. And authority, like any gift of God, uh, it can and it often has been twisted by Satan to serve his ends towards destructive things. And yet, these commands of God and, and the authority to command that he's delegated to his messengers, that is still a gift from God that God intends for our good. We need the commands of God, and it's, it's for our good, apparently, because it's the way that God designed it. It's for our good to receive those commands through flawed messengers. And so, in this passage, speaking on behalf of the Lord, the Apostle Paul is reminding us of three things that the Lord does to enable us to receive his commands as good gifts. So first, the Lord faithfully shepherds us into the safety of obedience Second, the Lord gives us confidence for steadfast obedience. And third, the Lord directs us into sincere obedience. The Lord faithfully shepherds us into the safety of obedience. So look again at the end of verse 2. For not all have faith, but the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. 
As you may remember, if you were here last week and um, you were listening closely to Pastor Steve's sermon, uh, that word for in verse 2 points us back to what has just been said in the preceding verses where Paul's asked for prayer. And, and part of that request for prayer was that uh, he, was, he was asking or telling them really to pray for him and his fellow missionaries that they would be delivered from wicked and evil men. If you just look back a little bit, you'll see that. So these are faithless people. They are under the sway of Satan, who is the evil one. They're doing his will. And so Paul's setting up a contrast here. He's saying, unlike those faithful, uh, faithless ones, those deceived by the evil one, those who are enslaved to do uh, Satan's work of opposing the gospel, you, church, you will be firmly established and guarded against the evil one. And look at who, who it is that stands between those faithless evil people who do the will of the evil one and, and those who are guarded from the evil one. It's beginning of verse 3, our faithful Lord. He will establish you in your faith. That means, establish means to strengthen you, to set you firmly, to be planted like a tree with roots that are going deeper and wider and broader until you cannot be shaken no matter how hard the storms of life may blow against you. Your faithful Lord, he says, will establish you in your faith. And that the Lord will faithfully guard you from the evil one. This doesn't mean that you won't feel the effects of Satan's attacks in your life. You could think of Job. He certainly felt the attacks of Satan in his life, but his faithful Lord was still guarding him. Because the guarding of the Lord, it means something better than being guarded or spared from sorrow and loss. It actually means that the Lord will protect that which is most precious. He will watch over your soul. He will preserve your faith for eternal life. He is the good shepherd who ensures that the wolves of the evil one don't lead you away into slaughter. He's the Lord who says in John 10, May my sheep hear my voice. They know, I know them, and they follow me. And this next part is just so beautiful. I love this. I give them eternal life. They will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. The good shepherd holds on to his sheep. No one will snatch the sheep out of the shepherd's hand. If you're a child of God, know that the Lord is faithful, that he will establish you, he will guard you against the evil one. And in hearing that, you might respond with, that's awesome, so comforting, and it means that I don't really have to do anything. The Lord's going to establish me, he's going to guard me, he will keep my, my faith firm, he'll, he'll keep me safe from the evil one. And though it is true that the Lord will establish and guard you, he does this. We've talked about this several times in, in the past weeks, that the Lord works through means. So what is the means by which the Lord establishes and guards his people? Well, 1 Thessalonians 3, verses 12 and 13, give us one answer. If, you wanna, if you're in 2 Thessalonians, just turn back a couple pages. 1 Thessalonians 3, verses 12 and 13. Actually, start in verse 11. Now may, God our, now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus 
direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. So he's saying that you're going to be established, in verse 13, through your increased and abounding love for one another, for your brothers and sisters. He says, he's asking that God would make them abound in love so that he may establish their hearts in holiness, to be preserved for the day of the Lord. And when he talks about love, it's not just a, a mere feeling. He's talking about love that is displayed in acts of kindness and mercy and generosity. And this is the same kind of thing that we see. We go back to 2 Thessalonians and back up just a few verses from where we're at. In verse 17 we see uh, of chapter 2, we see this word again, establish. It's again a prayer. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. So being established in every good work and word. The way that Paul uses that word established in these letters, it indicates that the Lord in his faithfulness, he guides and guards us by leading us to actively love our brothers and sisters in the faith and to obey all his commands. He says, into every good work, be established in every good work and word. And so while Paul in verse 3 is giving this wonderful encouragement, uh, this, this word about the Lord's faithfulness and how he will establish us and guard us, it's it's not just a random thing that he decided to throw in here. He's preparing his readers to see the necessity of obeying the Lord's commands. As they come through, the Lord's legitimate, even though flawed, messengers. Obedience to the Lord, he's saying, is the place of safety in the Lord. And maybe you don't yet clearly see that. Uh, maybe you don't see that the establishing and guarding by the Lord in verse 3 is connected to our obedience in this way. And it's certainly true that uh, leading us to obey him is not all that the Lord does to establish us in the faith and to guard us. Uh, it's true what the Heidelberg Catechism says. It teaches the believer to say that the Lord watches over me in such a way that all things must work together for my salvation. And so it's not limited to leading us to obey, but I do think that this is Paul's intended emphasis here in this passage, and I think that's going to become more apparent as we look at verse 4. So verse 4, the Lord gives us confidence for steadfast obedience. Let's read verse 4. We have confidence in the Lord about you, that you are doing and will do the things that we command. And we have confidence in the Lord about you that you are doing and will do the things that we command. So Paul, when he says and, he's not just ticking off items on a list. Uh, it's not like, okay, uh, what do I want to say? I want to say this. Okay, and, and this, and this, and this. And here actually connects back to what he's just said. And so the meaning really seems to be 
because of verse 3, because we have absolute confidence in the Lord's faithful care for you, we also now have confidence that you will obey our commands. That seems a little bit odd, doesn't it? Why would that be the case? What's the connection between the Lord's care and the apostles' commands? I think the, the logical thing to infer from this is what I was just arguing for, namely that Paul sees obedience to his apostolic commands as one of the means through which the Lord establishes and guards his people. And therefore, because the Lord will be faithful to guard his sheep from the evil one, Paul is confident that the Lord will also work in his sheep in such a way that they obey commands that he gives through his messengers. And so when we talk about commands, what what does Paul have in mind? What commands? Well, definitely the ones to come in chapter 3 that he's about to give when he says, now we command you. Um, He probably intends that command to pray that we see in verse 1 of chapter 3. But the ESV translation, it reflects the original language pretty well here, I think. And notice that it doesn't say, um, we have confidence in the Lord about you that you are doing and will do the things that we're about to command or or that we just commanded. But it's more broad. It's, It's the things that we command. And I'm certain that Paul intends to include all the apostolic commands regarding what believers should believe and do. It includes what he taught them when he was with them in Thessalonica. It includes what he had taught them in the previous letter that he sent to them. It includes everything in this letter. And because the authority for his commands comes through his position as an apostle, that's a messenger of the Lord Jesus, when we are applying this, we can safely view that phrase, the things that we command, as applying to all the apostolic commands, everything that the Lord has commanded through his messengers, through his word. And when we consider all that the Lord has commanded to us, when we consider everything that he calls us to, that he requires of us as his people, I think we all probably first think about all the times that we have failed to do what he commands. We tend to dwell on the failures, don't we? And Paul, here in expressing this confident word about this church, he's not blind to the shortcomings of the people that he's writing to. He's, he's about to, uh, in the next verse, give them a pretty strong rebuke, a strong command. And it's, it's really a, a, a word of rebuke. But he gives them this incredibly powerful word of encouragement first. He and his missionary partners, Timothy and Sylvanus, they're confident because of the faithfulness of Jesus that these brothers and sisters are walking in, they're growing in, and they will continue in obedience to all the commands of Jesus. And he has this confidence in them because he's seen clear evidence that they truly do belong to Jesus. Uh, In his first letter to them, Paul wrote, We know, brothers and sisters loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. 
So because of the way that they received the gospel message when, when it was preached to them, he's convinced that God had chosen them to be his children, chosen them to believe. And then he says, uh, it's not only that they received the gospel in that way, but it's the fact that they were actually holding fast to it. They were living in light of the gospel. If you remember at the beginning of this letter in um, chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, Paul and his companions, they say, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith, that faith that you demonstrated when you heard the gospel, you believed, it's growing abundantly. And the love of every one of you for one another, it's increasing. They go on to say, Therefore we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and the afflictions that you are enduring. Not only did you believe, but your faith is growing your love for one another is growing, and you are holding fast even in the face of resistance. And so because of this, Paul has the same confidence for these believers as he had for the, the Philippian believers when he said, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He has this confidence in Jesus for these brothers and sisters. And I want to give you, brothers and sisters, the same kind of encouragement today. Your, your pastors, we, we regularly praise God and we express thanks to one another, sometimes to you. We've said this before, but we are so thankful that the Lord has given us the joy of shepherding a group of people who, who have shown and continue to show a sincere desire to hear and to obey the commands of Jesus. We are not a perfect church, we won't be perfected until the day that the Lord returns. But your pastors, we preach and we lead and we counsel with confidence in the Lord that as we remain faithful to give you biblical commands, that you are doing and will do the things that we command. And we truly count it a joy and a privilege to be your pastors and it's a privilege and a joy to have this kind of confidence in the Lord about you as a church. It is, it is a gift, and we don't take it lightly. We treasure it. But that confidence that we have about you in the Lord, it doesn't make us complacent. We, we pray that that would continue to be true of you. We pray for the Lord to bring about this sincere obedience that we can't create. And we take our cue from Paul and his companions on this. This is verse 5, where he says, May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. Paul knew that his commands, even when he, he paired them up with encouraging words, that none of his words can create true obedience to Christ, because mere men don't have that power. The Lord alone can direct the hearts of his people into sincere obedience. And so verse 5, it's not a change of subject or just a, a prayer that he has randomly thrown in here. It's there because the obedience to his commands that God desires is obedience from the heart. And that's actually the, the only obedience that is truly obedience in the eyes of God. That's an obedience that wells up out of a heart that's been filled up with love from God, so much that it overflows with love 
to God, resulting in joyful obedience to his commands. And this is what Paul gives thanks to God for doing in the Christians in Rome when he says in Romans chapter 6, But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. See, this sincere obedience to God's commands, it's a reflexive response from a heart that God has so captured with his love that it can't help but respond with love towards God. And this is the kind of obedience that God requires, an obedience out of love. And so Paul prays for this, for this church. And likewise, he prays that the Lord will so focus the hearts of these believers on the steadfastness of Christ that they will be steadfastly faithful to Christ, even in the face of persecution, even as they have been, that they will more and more remain steadfast to the Lord. And that word steadfastness, it carries the idea of patient endurance. So the prayer is that the Lord would direct your heart to meditate on the patient endurance displayed by Christ, who in submission to his Father's will humbled himself by taking on flesh, who endured the temptations of the evil one without once giving in, who endured slander, mockery, hatred, betrayal, torture, and even death. And as you marvel at the patient endurance of Jesus, may you become like him, gladly submitting yourself to the will of the Father, patiently enduring every trial and temptation with humble faith, and waiting with hopeful longing for the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. May it be so for you, brothers and sisters. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and the steadfastness of of Christ. <clears throat> and I want to give a few applications because as I said there is a there is a a danger in two ways. There's a danger for those who are giving biblical commands speaking with biblical authority uh, of doing that wrongly, sinfully. There's also a danger in looking at the fact that many have used that authority sinfully and then rejecting biblical commands because they come through sinful people. And so just a few words of application first for those giving biblical commands. And this applies, I think, most obviously to pastors. Um, Also applies to parents who are in a place of authority in the lives of their children. But I think we can also apply it Anytime that we are opening up the word of God and saying, thus says the Lord, or just holding a Bible and saying, thus says the Lord, we are speaking as if in the authority of God. And so this could be piney family leaders, Bible study leaders, even in a discipleship group. If you're trying to um, maybe call someone to repentance, rebuke them, you're speaking authoritatively on behalf of God. And so I think these These words of caution can be applied by all of us, really. So those giving biblical commands should first give words of gospel-centered preparation. Try to help people receive the commands. This is what Paul is doing here. 
He's preparing people to receive the commands he's about to give. And this is just a wise and loving way of leading. And so even if you need to give words of rebuke, words of correction, if you can, you should first try to encourage, first try to to look for where the Lord has been at work, encourage that work, and then expect, as Paul does, be confident that that this person is submitted to the Lord, and so they're going to obey. And if you're proven wrong and they don't obey, then as Paul does here, expect it again. Love hopes all things. Continue loving, continue hoping, and remind them of the Lord's power at work within them. See, I'm confident, not, not because I know you have the ability and strength within you. I know you don't, actually, but I know that the Lord does and that the Lord is at work in you. And pray for them and tell them what you're praying for them, as Paul does here. So give, gos- uh, give words of gospel-centered preparation. And then also give only biblical commands, biblical weight. Give only biblical commands, biblical weight. What I mean by that is that we need to be very careful not to communicate our personal preferences or our choices in areas of biblical freedom or, for parents, our family rules, as if those are commanded by the Lord. And we should really be careful to not even make it feel as if we're saying about these things where there is, is freedom. We shouldn't even make it feel like we're saying, thus says the Lord. We need to differentiate carefully between what God has commanded and, and what we prefer or what we have chosen, how we have specifically chosen to apply some biblical commands. That shouldn't make us shy away from giving biblical commands. We should give the commands, but and we should give them the weight that they deserve. We shouldn't shy away from that. If it's the Lord speaking, then we should communicate it in such a way that this is what the Lord says. But we should be certain that we're actually communicating what the Lord commands. Which connects to the next thing, which is we should give biblical commands for the good of others. All those who speak with biblical authority, especially pastors and parents, must always be careful that we are aiming for the good of those under our authority and that we're not aiming for our own good. Because to do that is manipulation. Manipulation is when someone tries to motivate obedience to a command for his own benefit. And often the benefit is simply that feeling of having power over someone else, right? And that must never be our motivation for giving biblical commands. If we really desire those who hear us to submit to Jesus for their good, then we won't desire their hearts to be directed towards mere submission to us. Our desire will be that they're directed towards the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ. And so we need to ask this question. Are those under my authority being drawn ever more towards the joyful freedom of submission to Jesus or ever more towards fear-based submission to me? Where are those under my authority being drawn? And again, this applies broadly. Bible teachers, parents, pastors need to be 
careful and wise in the way that we wield the authority that God has given to us. But for those receiving biblical commands, a few words. First, you should gladly receive them as care from your faithful shepherd. So when you receive biblical commands, you should gladly receive them as uh, care from your faithful shepherd. And I think one of the things that this means is that we shouldn't require the one who commands us to be perfect. Because our commands come mediated, they're from God, but they come mediated through flawed people, flawed messengers. So there is no perfect messenger, but sometimes we may feel justified in rejecting a legitimate command from God because it's come through a messenger who has maybe not done some of the things that I just talked about. Well, they didn't prepare me well. They didn't give me any encouragement first. They just gave me a command. It wasn't very gospel-centered, so I feel justified in rejecting it. But that imperfection doesn't give us an out. Even if we sense that someone's motivations are are wrong, if they're selfish, if they're truly giving us a biblical command, we should still submit to the command because it is God's command. I mean, if you remember, Jesus even said of the scribes and Pharisees, he said, he was teaching people, don't do what they do because their obedience is not from the heart. It's not real. They're, they're trying to manipulate God's law in their own life so that they can appear to be righteous. He says, so don't do what they do. But he says, listen to what they're telling you. Obey what they're telling you because they, they stand on Moses' seat, which means they're teaching from the law of Moses. They're teaching with the authority of God, even though they're hypocritical. So he doesn't say, don't obey them. He says, when they're speaking true words of God, you still obey their commands, even though they're coming from hypocrites. And so don't, don't require perfection in the one giving you the commands, but gladly receive the command as a good gift from your faithful shepherd. And secondly, be confident in the Lord that you are able to obey. And this is hard because we recognize how often we have failed to obey. We hear a command, we say, yes, I know this is what the Lord wants me to do. I'm going to do it. And we walk out and we fail. But have confidence in the Lord that he is at work within you, that he is enabling you. As Philippians 2 says, it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. This is why we have hope. This is why we can have confidence, not because of our own ability, not because of our own strength, but what we saying earlier, because it's not us, but Christ in us, his power at work within us. Be confident in the Lord that you are able to obey. And last, prepare to receive and obey the Lord's commands by soaking your heart in the gospel. Remember, resistance to commands is what comes to us naturally. True obedience comes only through the gospel. And so immerse your heart in it. Immerse your heart in the love of God. Immerse your heart in the, the steadfastness of Jesus, his patient endurance on your behalf. Soak your heart in the gospel. And the Lord's Supper is an opportunity that we have each week to do just that, to soak our hearts in the gospel. And the elements of the Lord's Supper, that, that bread and that juice, 
that represent the body and blood of Jesus, those draw our gaze to the centerpiece of the gospel, which is the cross where the good shepherd laid down his life for his sheep. The Lord's Supper also directs our hearts towards the love of God the Father, who gave up his only son to death so that whoever believes in him can have eternal life instead of eternal punishment. In the same way, the Lord's Supper directs our hearts towards the steadfastness of Christ who persevered through every temptation and trial, steadfastly obeying every command of his heavenly Father, crying out even in the face of imminent torture and death, Father, not my will, but yours be done. And so, for all here who have responded with obedient faith to the love of God, and you've had that profession of faith affirmed by the church through baptism, you're invited in just a few minutes to come up and take the Lord's Supper. You will exit your row to the left. You'll come to the front and pick up the communion elements. We have gluten-free on the, your far left table. Take those and go back to your seat from the right side of your row. And there at your seat, you can take that bread and that juice, these communion elements. You can take them on your own or with your family. But as you do so, I invite you and encourage you today, pray. Pray and ask the Lord to make this more than just a, a ritual or a tradition. Ask him to work through it to direct your heart to be just more saturated with his love. To be more, more in awe of the sacrificial obedience of Jesus. That your heart would be directed towards what communion is pointing us towards. In such a way that your life then overflows in sacrificial and thankful obedience to God. But if you're not yet trusting in Jesus, then when others come up, we ask that you please not do that. The, the Bible teaches that this communion meal, this Lord's Supper, is for believers only. But what you can do is you can pray that prayer. You can pray that asking God to overwhelm your heart with his love, asking him to, to help you to see the beauty in what Jesus did on the cross, to, uh, to help you see your need for it. You can just pray a, a very simple prayer. God, I know I'm a sinner. Have mercy on me. And if you'd, like, um, if you'd like for one of the pastors to pray for you or, or talk with you, we would love to share with you more about uh, what it means that God delights to save sinners. So I'll be down here in front during the communion time. I would love to pray with you, or you can uh, grab one of us after the worship gathering, or you can fill out a connection card, and we would love to talk with you more. But I'm going to pray, and then for those who should come, I invite you to come to the Lord's table. Would you bow with me in prayer? God, we so desperately need you to direct our hearts to your love. We are, we are quickly drawn towards self-love. We're quickly drawn to consider so many other things before we consider the steadfast faithfulness of Christ, his endurance, what he suffered for us. We think about our own suffering and it becomes huge in our minds and what he did can become seems small in our minds. But Lord, I ask that today that you would pour your love into our hearts by your Holy Spirit. 
that you would, through that, empower us to walk in love and obedience for the glory of Jesus. And we pray in his name. Amen.